his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Thanks for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, we'll meet Mark Blum. He is the executive director of America's Agenda Healthcare for All. He explains the PBM Accountability Project. We'll also meet Pennsylvania Healthcare Association's Zach Schamberg. He recently testified during a House Aging and Older Adult Services Committee hearing about the access to care crisis across the state. It's time to do that spring cleaning. Dawn Webster is here and she has some good advice when it comes to cleaning out your medicine cabinet. And don't forget, Saturday, April 30th is Drug Take Back Day. We're starting off today with April being Invasive Plant Pest and Disease Awareness Month. Van Pilcher with the United States Department of Agriculture tells us how to identify those hungry pests. Let's talk about April being Invasive Plant Pest and Disease Awareness Month. And why, Van, is that something that we should even be concerned about? So, you know, April is Invasive Plant Pest and Disease Awareness Month because it's the time of year where invasive pests start to emerge. And so as you're out and about enjoying the warm weather, uh, playing in the backyard with your kids, or going around your neighborhood for walks, we're asking all Americans to, to take a look for signs of these invasive pests, otherwise known as hungry pests, because they're not native to our area, and they have very few or no natural predators. So if we leave them unchecked, they can quickly spread and they can disrupt our ecosystem by pushing out those native species. And as a result, they can cost the U.S. an estimated $40 billion a year. Now, here in Pennsylvania and here in Northeast Pennsylvania, we are now seeing spotted lantern fly, and we're hearing all kinds of things about that. Can you give us how that fits in to this particular invasive plant pest? Yeah, so spotted lanternfly is a hungry pest. Um, it is led um, by the local Pennsylvania Department of Ag. And so, you know, it damages trees and it damages grapes. It feeds on a wide range of fruit, ornamental, and woody trees. Specifically, the tree of heaven is its preferred host. So if you find them, um, you want to make sure you squash and scrape any egg masses and you just want to squash the adults. And it's regulated by the state. There's probably people who are listening who are saying, I don't even know what I'd be looking for because 
there's so many different things out there, as you mentioned earlier, going out. So how do you find out what's what? HungryPest.com is a website where we have these invasive pests, these hungry pests listed. There's pictures, there's a plethora of information, and there are signs and symptoms. So if um, your listeners are out and about and uh, some signs they can pay attention to is plants, um, they'll ooze or weep and have a fermented odor. Also, there's a buildup of sticky fluid on plants and on the ground underneath those infested plants. And lastly, there's sooty mold on the infested plants. And when we're talking about the outdoors, of course, we've been getting a lot of rain because it's April. And when we're talking about such saturated conditions, does that help or hurt these invasive pests? So when you're talking about, you know, weather, you know, weather can magnify the impact of these hungry pests, invasive pests, and climate change has increased the level of plant pest infestations and disease infection. So that's why it's so important for the USDA to ask for the public's help and uh, looking for its signs and reporting the signs. And on HungryPest.com, you can contact your local uh, your local Department of Agriculture or USDA's equivalent state plant health director to report the signs. And the location. When we talk about these hungry pests and they're happening here in Pennsylvania, uh, wooded areas, are they having an impact anywhere else that would be far reaching? For example, Here in Pennsylvania, in the woods, we're not growing food. But in other places, are they there and they're harming the crops? Yeah, so invasive insects and plant diseases cost the U.S. an estimated $40 billion a year in damages to plants we depend on. But more importantly, when you're talking about forests and and wood, you definitely want to make sure that if you have sudden oak death in your area, you do not... Um, you know, you're looking for egg masses, you're looking for any mud or soil, you want to be able to clean and not transport dirty uh, boots and sneakers um, or other items to a new location. And if you're, um, you know, you love to be around the bonfire like I do, I love spending time around the bonfire with my kids and with my husband, you want to make sure you are not moving untreated firewood. And you want to be buying certified heat-treated firewood so that those wood-boring pests are not hitchhiking their way to a new location and we are inadvertently moving them. How would you even know? Because again, when we're out and about, and as you said, you've got bonfires going, you might be camping, and all of a sudden when you're arriving at a new destination, you have a hitchhiker. So sometimes you don't even know they're there. Correct. You won't know. So that's why it's, it's you know, better to be safe than sorry. And we have helpful tips for a call to action on HungryPest.com so that every American join us in the fight to leave all those hungry pests behind. And you can contact your local Department of Agriculture official or the counterpart at USDA, our state plant health director, and their contact information is on HungryPest.com. Sometimes when we go away to another area, there are flowers and plants and we say, oh, wouldn't they look nice in our yard? Van, are you cringing at that? 
I am, because one of the actions, the call to action in our ask um, is to also be really mindful of transporting plants or plant products from one state to the next, because there may be local quarantines in in effect um, in that area. So one of the things that is really helpful is to just know, know where you're buying from, know what local quarantines are in place before you move it, and also to ensure that it's already been cleared by inspectors. So if you go to HungryPest.com, there's, again, a slew of information. And when in doubt, call your local Department of Ag or USDA State Plant Health Director. Now, before I let you go, maybe you can wrap all of this up for our listeners today, because as you said, we're starting to get into the beautiful outdoors and we're running into all kinds of critters, hungry pests that sometimes we don't even know they're there. So what do you want to leave with our listeners so that we can keep our environment safe? Yeah, so what I'd love to leave is, um, you know, these pets are natural hitchhikers and that we may intentionally, unintentionally move them to new areas. So if you go to HungryPets.com, you can learn all about the signs, what to look for, and who to report to, report to and also just helpful tips on preventing their spread so that we can all join to leave these hungry pests behind. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks again to Van Pilcher with the United States Department of Agriculture for joining us during April, Invasive Plant Pest and Disease Awareness Month. And remember, you can find out more by visiting HungryPests.com. Now, don't go away. When we come back, we're going to find out how to safely clean out your medicine cabinet and remind you, coming up on Saturday, April 30th, it is National Drug Take Back Day. All that is next on Special Edition. Next on Special Edition, Dawn Webster, Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress, says it's time to clean out your medicine cabinet and tells us how to do it safely. Dawn, when we're talking about the seasons changing, so many people like to think of the fact that now we're going to be able to open our windows and let the new in and get rid of all the winter stuff. But you have a different approach to spring cleaning. What is that? My spring cleaning that I like to talk about is the spring cleaning that most people don't talk about this or think about, the spring cleaning of your first aid kit your medicine cabinet, and even your beach bag. All right, let's start with the medicine cabinet. So the first thing to think about when you're cleaning your medicine cabinet are all of those medications that are old and expired. So when it comes to the liquid medications, so the kids' Tylenol, the Motrin, the allergy, um, syrups or suspensions, you want to dump those down the drain. And another place you may want to look if you have kids is in the refrigerator. So a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this myself, when um, my child is given an antibiotic, if we don't use it all, or even if, you know, they've taken all 10 days and there's a little bit left in the bottle, I don't even think about it. Sometimes I just leave it in the fridge. So not only do you want to look at your medicine cabinet, but you want to look in your refrigerator also. And anything that's old or expired, you want to dump down the drain and throw the bottles away. Now, when it comes to pills and things that aren't liquid, we need to dispose of those also. So we need to dispose of them if you're no longer prescribed it or if it's older expired. And there's multiple ways to do that. 
So one of the most convenient ways would be to take it on a um, day that the pharmacies and police departments are doing the take backs where they take old medications back and safely dispose of them. So you can do that. And if that's not an option, your pharmacist should take it even on a day that's not a considered a take back day. So those are two things you want to think about, getting rid of the old and expired medications in the medicine cabinet. Now, the other thing you want to look at are your ointments and your creams and, you know, your your neosporins. So even if it's not necessarily expired yet, if it's been open and in there for longer than a year, you, you probably just want to get a new one. You know, it can separate and it also won't be as effective in terms of if it has any antimicrobial properties. So you want to make sure you get rid of those older expired ointments and creams also. See, now that was one I didn't think about because you buy those things and if you don't use them a lot, they end up sitting in your medicine cabinet and you take it out and say, it's been two years since I looked at this. Mm -hmm. So checking the expiration date, probably a good idea. Yes, absolutely. And along those lines, that's why I brought up the beach bag. So most people kind of forget that sunscreens and sunblocks also expire and they have expiration dates. So it's also a good thing getting ready for summer, doing the spring cleaning to pull out your beach bag, pull out your tote, get that sunblock out. If it's expired, toss it and get get, get a new one because it won't work once it's expired. Ah, another good point. See, that's something else because I you say, well, I still have half a can, so there's still plenty in here that I can use. All right, let's go back now. A first aid kit. How many have one in their home? So I would say most people should have one um, either in their home or their vehicle. Most people have one in each, and that's what I would recommend. And then when you're looking at your first aid kit, same thing. You want to look at if there's any expired medications in there. You're going to need to dispose of those if there's any expired liquids, and then the bandages also. So if you have a Band-Aid from, you know, 1983, it's probably not going to be very sticky anymore. So take a look at the bandages, look at the wrappers, you know, even if it's a Band-Aid and it doesn't necessarily expire, if the wrapper is falling apart or if it looks old, just get some new ones. Now, when we're talking about all of these things for spring cleaning, once we get everything cleaned out, What are some of the things that, and especially in that first aid kit, that we should have for the upcoming summer season? Sure. So the most important things um, are Band-Aids, antibiotic and first aid ointments, gauze, gloves. And then you also want to have your medications that you take on a daily basis. So that way, if you would get stuck somewhere and you have your car, you do have, you know, two or three days worth of your your heart medicine or whatever it is you take on a daily basis. And then the other thing you have to think about are first aid items like flashlights, blankets, things that are useful in emergencies, not just the medications. One of the other things that just came to my mind is bug repellent and bug, uh, you, you, when you get a bug bite, you put the stuff on that's supposed to uh, take it, take the, the itch away, yes. those things? Yes. 
Yes. So those are super helpful too, especially if you're a family that does a lot of outdoor activities, whether it's camping or hiking or even baseball. I mean, these things notoriously happen at baseball games. So yeah, definitely a, um, and they call it like anti-sting or anti-venom. And it's typically like a stick that has liquid in it that you just rub right on the bite and it settles it down. And it also has, um, you know, properties to help it from getting infected. And then just like you said, the bug repellent, if you are going to be hiking and that the bug repellent typically helps with ticks also. So that's another great thing. It's not only going to keep those bugs that sting away, but it'll keep ticks off of you also. Let's talk a little bit more about ticks because again, we're going to be outdoors and aren't there kits that you can buy that have uh, an instrument in them to help you remove a tick? Yes. So they're getting more and more popular with ticks every year because they're getting so so much more prevalent in Pennsylvania. So yes, there are kits that you can buy and what they have in them, it looks like a little soup, almost like a teaspoon um, with a very, very thin wedge. And essentially anyone can use it and you just you know, put it right up against the tick, slide it forward, and the tick comes out into that spoon. And the greatest thing about it is it doesn't look like anything that would hurt. So when kids see it coming at them, they don't get nervous. When they see tweezers, when they, you know, they get nervous, they think it's going to hurt. When they see this little plastic spoon, they're like, oh, you know, what's that? So that's the other thing I like about it. It doesn't look scary. So, you know, yes, they do sell tick removal kits. Typically, it'll come with an alcohol swab or even um, some type of, you know, wipe to use after you remove the tick. And um, I would definitely recommend having one of those also. Oh, you mentioned alcohol. Now, that's another thing. Sometimes you buy that rubbing alcohol and it sits there. You might use it once or twice. So that's another thing that you should probably check the expiration date on. Yes, that and peroxide. People buy hydrogen peroxide and that also has an expiration date on it. Anything else, Dawn? Because we've got, we've expanded our kit. We've taken care, we've taken care of everything in the medicine cabinet and the beach bag. So anything else that we need to know? So the only other thing I would add is if possible, if you have um, significant allergies or any significant medical problems, to keep that list in your first aid kit too. Because if you are in a car accident or if something does happen, a lot of times those are questions that are going to be asked. And if you're hurt or if, you know, something even worse, like you're un- unconscious, they will have that information also. So it's always a good thing with your first aid kits to put either, you know, your list of medications and allergies and medical conditions, or even just the name and number of your, of your doctor. Dawn Webster, Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress. And don't forget, Saturday, April 30th is National Drug Take Back Day. Local and state police will be collecting unused medications for safe disposal at their locations. And remember, disposing of liquid meds down the drain may not be allowed in your community, so you better check before you do it. Coming up next, we're going to talk long-term care and prescription drug prices on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. Now we meet Pennsylvania Healthcare Association's Zach Schamberg. He recently testified during a House Aging and Older Adult Services Committee about a survey that they took on the access to care crisis across the state. He's going to tell us about the hearing and what that survey told them. 
Zach, I'd like you to start off by giving our listeners a little bit of an overview on the Pennsylvania Healthcare Association. Yeah, of course, and thank you for having me. We are a statewide advocacy organization located in Harrisburg, just steps away from the Capitol, and we represent long-term care in Pennsylvania. That includes nursing homes, personal care homes, and assisted living communities. We represent the providers, we represent the workers, our healthcare heroes, and we represent, most importantly, the vulnerable senior citizens that they serve. We really, as an association, are the conduit between those on the front lines and those in state government, our elected officials, our governor, and his administration. And our role has really never been more important than it's been over the last two years, given that long-term care really became the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you give us some specifics as to how that did affect long-term care? Yeah, of course. And again, long-term care really became the epicenter beginning in March 2020. And for two years, we were proud to fight along with our member providers for support and for resources. Because what the COVID-19 pandemic did was shine a bright light on our industry and our sector and the need for that type of support. So whether it was for PPE or personal protective equipment, whether it was for testing, whether it was for staffing, whether it was for prioritization for the COVID-19 vaccine, if you can believe it, in early 2021, the last two years really enabled long-term care to go into that spotlight and to say, here's what we need to be successful. What's interesting is that many of the challenges that really emerged or were amplified and exacerbated by the pandemic existed prior to March 2020. So whether it was Medicaid reimbursement, whether it was the regulatory environment here in Pennsylvania, the legal environment here in Pennsylvania, or the workforce shortage in Pennsylvania. Those issues were amplified throughout the past two years, and now it's really an opportunity for us and for our elected officials to right those wrongs and to put this sector on the path to success. You did a recent survey, and I know you also appeared before the Pennsylvania House Aging and Older Adult Services Committee, and I'd like to talk about that. The survey, and really they're interchangeable because during that hearing with the House Aging and Older Adult Services Committee, we highlighted the results of that survey. So we can go there first. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the survey. When was that done and how? So what we did was really build on a pre-existing survey that we conducted back in September of 2021. Back in September of 2021, we asked about the workforce shortage in long-term care because that shortage has really grown into a full-blown crisis. And what we found ultimately was that since the beginning of the pandemic, March 2020, our member providers lost nearly 20% of their available workforce. And at that time, there were more than 20 open, open positions in the average nursing home throughout the state that 
providers just couldn't fill. Now, we built on that. And last month, we asked our providers to look back from December 2021 through February 2022 to tell us what that workforce crisis really meant to them and what it meant to the care that they hope to deliver to seniors across the state. And unfortunately, what we found is that Pennsylvania has another crisis. We have an access to care crisis. And we are one of the oldest states in terms of population in the entire country. What we are finding is that the vast majority of our members declined hospital and non-hospital referral referrals, potential patients or residents, simply as a result of not having enough staff. Providers are are admitting residents from further distances than ever before. So folks are having to travel more and more miles just to receive care. And I think what's most alarming is that nearly half of our member respondents said they have on average more than 30 licensed beds sitting empty in their facilities because they don't have enough staff to bring in residents to fill them. That is a very, very alarming trend. Any idea why? It's simply due to the workforce shortage and the workforce crisis. They cannot bring in or accept new residents because they don't have enough staff to care for them. So let's talk a little bit about now you appearing before the House Aging and Older Adult Services Committee. When you spoke, did they look at that or listen to that? Were they shocked? They were shocked. And really, at the Pennsylvania Healthcare Association, we pride ourselves on not just coming to the table with challenges, but coming to the table with solutions. And I think one of the most important things that we did was to bring members of the House of Representatives solutions, whether it is an investment, a sustainable investment in Medicaid reimbursement, whether it is utilizing federal stimulus funds, the American Rescue Plan for recruitment and retention bonuses, whether it is controlling outside contract staffing agencies and looking to cap their rates so that nursing home providers can't be price gouged just to fill open shifts, or whether it is ensuring that state contractors are able to certify our potential workers without bureaucratic hoops and burdens and challenges, we laid out a plan that lawmakers can institute almost immediately to ensure that we've got enough workers at resident bedside to continue accepting residents. The last thing we want to have in this state, again, with one of the oldest populations in the country, is an access to care issue. After you gave those suggestions, what was the reaction? Well, I think we really spurred members of the House of Representatives and members of the House Aging and Older Adult Services Committee to take action. And we heard it just in questions and comments after our testimony, whether it was looking at sustainable investments, be it the Medicaid reimbursement and Medicaid program in this year's budget, be it 
ARP or American Rescue Plan funding, or again, just holding the state accountable to ensure that if we're trying to build a workforce pipeline in Pennsylvania, nothing should be standing in the way of that. No sort of bureaucratic burden or challenge should be standing in the way of ensuring we can certify a potential certified nurse aide or CNA. So I'm very hopeful we are very hopeful as an industry that this year we're going to see sizable action from our elected officials. And again, we'll write the ship for long-term care moving forward. When you're talking about long-term care, Zach, what about people who have long-term care insurance? Is this going to impact them since they're paying into it now for what's going to happen down the road? Yeah, I think we it's really important to look at down the road and, you know, not just for long term care insurance, but maybe even for Pennsylvanians on older Pennsylvanians who are utilizing private pay. They may be in personal care. They may be in assisted living. They may be in a nursing home, but ultimately and eventually they may spend down to the point where they are considered a Medicaid resident and Medicaid or the state is paying for their care. We need to ensure that we have a robust reimbursement system so that providers can keep their doors open, that they can fill their open beds, that they can invest in their staff, and that we can ensure we meet the needs of our vulnerable senior citizens, not just today and not just tomorrow, but in 10 and 15 years, especially as our demographics age. It's it's a terrible thing to say that going through covid was what kind of brought all this to the forefront. Let's just say, what if it didn't happen? It's a great question. And I think we were seeing that. We were seeing the potential future in 2018 and 2019 prior to the pandemic. And you're right. It is unfortunate that it took a global pandemic to shine a light on the inadequacies of this sector and of this industry and really the need for support and resources. But what we were seeing in Pennsylvania in 2018 and 19 were a a rush of sales and changes of ownership and reorganizations. We were seeing longtime family-owned Pennsylvania providers leave the state and leave the industry altogether. And we were seeing more and more out-of-state providers come into Pennsylvania. Now, I would also add that across the country, in states like South Dakota and Nebraska and all throughout the nation, we were seeing closures. And I do fear that if, I do fear that, if that support and if those resources aren't brought to this industry, that we'll begin to see that in Pennsylvania. And I do want to point out that just a few weeks ago, we were at a nursing facility that specializes in ventilator care in Southeast Pennsylvania. And we were there because that nursing facility was announcing that it would be closing. And it was closing because costs have risen year after year after year, and costs have skyrocketed throughout the last two years and the COVID-19 pandemic. But the Medicaid reimbursement has simply not kept pace. So that facility will be closing, and that means upwards of 50 residents will need to be transferred. That means that staff will have to find new jobs. And ultimately, it means that people will have to find a new home. We shouldn't have to make that announcement in this state. But I fear 
that if we are not on the road to recovery and we don't find a sustainable solution, we will be making more and more of those announcements. Ultimately, the last two years gave long-term care a voice. And I think we have to be grateful for that, but we also have to use that microphone, that bullhorn to ensure that we get the support that we need. What can our listeners who are hearing you talk about this today and maybe give them a spurt to say, that could be me someday, so maybe I should plan ahead. Are there things that we can do? 100%. I would encourage your listeners to visit whowillcarepa.com. And whether you are a frontline caregiver, whether you work in long-term care, whether you know that one day long-term care may be in your future, or whether you're the loved one of someone in a long-term care facility, go to whowillcarepa.com to make your voice heard and to send your message to your state legislators to, again, ensure that we've got support and we've got the support that we need for sustainability of this sector. I would also encourage your listeners to go to pennsylvania.carefortheaging.com to look for positions, to look for employment, careers in long-term care. If you're interested in stepping up and serving our most vulnerable and coming to the front lines, go there and find resources to enable you to start your career in long-term care, really a, a career begins when you find your life's passion, and that could be in long-term care. I would also add that I am the grandson of, of a grandfather who is currently in long-term care, and I have lived this throughout the last two years. This is very, very personal for me as it is for many of your listeners and folks around Pennsylvania. So let's work together. And again, let's ensure we get on the road to sustainability in Pennsylvania. The survey report is also available online, correct? That's exactly right. You can visit phca.org, our website, to find that and to find other resources. You can follow us, PHCA Cares, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And we would encourage you to reach out for more information. That's Pennsylvania Healthcare Association President and CEO, Zach Schamberg. And if you would like to find out more about his testimony during the House Aging and Older Adult Services Committee hearing, or about access to care crisis across the state, you can log on to phca.org. Prescription drug prices, another big concern. They're skyrocketing here in Pennsylvania and across the country. Now Mark Blum joins us on Special Edition. Mark is the Executive Director of America's Agenda Healthcare for All. He tells us about Pharmacy Benefit Managers, otherwise known as PBMs, and their PBM Accountability Project. Mark, thank you for joining us. And first, maybe you could give our listeners just a little bit of a brief introduction as to who you are and who you're affiliated with. I'm Mark Bloom. I'm Executive Director of America's Agenda, which is a family of a couple of think tanks focusing on healthcare policy, bringing together labor, and employers in a bipartisan way to look at how health care can be made affordable and high quality, all Americans. So how do we do that? 
we're hearing so much about prescription drug prices going up. What do you say is something that can be done? Let's focus on prescription drug prices. We've had some success in bringing down pretty significantly the cost of prescription drugs through policies we've recommended at the state level. We're also engaged in discussions at the national level. It's important when we look at the prescription drug market to recognize that it's a dysfunctional market. You see prices going up and down constantly for prescription drugs patients need to save their lives, to manage their health conditions, to manage chronic diseases. But generally, you see them rising. You see specialty drugs rising as a growing component of the total uh, healthcare spend. You've heard the publicity or you've experienced people not being able to afford drugs is basic to saving their lives as insulin for diabetic patients. And you wonder, why is this going on? If you look at the prescription drug marketplace, you see a marketplace that's intermediated by, in the middle of the market, a middleman type corporate broker called a prescription drug manager. Now, prescription drug managers came into, into being some decades ago around the value proposition that if we can aggregate demand patients and small employers into large demand, we can leverage, we can negotiate discounts from pharmacy drug manufacturers. That might have been the initial motivation. Since then, these CBMs have grown into a huge corporate enterprise, billions of dollars, in which three of the largest PBMs control 80% of the prescription drug market. They've been able to create very complex pricing algorithms so that it's like a balloon. You can squeeze down one part of the price of drugs or one driver of the, of the drugs. Take, for example, rebates. They've been in the public. Uh, squeeze down rebates, and the PBMs can take those revenues out of another part of these complex pricing uh, formulas or algorithms. The PBMs have been able to divert a large part of the savings that was originally intended for payers, taxpayers, employers, patients, into their own bank account. PBMs have become, in fact, one of the fastest growing components in terms of profit margins in the whole healthcare uh, marketplace. Until we can create meaningful competition within the prescription drug marketplace, then PBM arbitrageurs, middlemen, will be able to exploit this complex marketplace that they largely have created in order to divert savings into their own bank account. So your question is, what can be done? Describing the problem, a number of things could be done. We've recommended policy solutions that look at, for example, the high degree of concentration in the PBM marketplace. How do we create competition when we've got monopolists or actually they're oligopolists where a few large corporate entities control the vast majority over 80% of the market. Uh, the FTC has looked at the issue. They've failed to act to date. PBM lobbyists have been very important. Congress has an important role to put scrutiny on PBM actions. PBMs don't report in terms of public reporting in very much detail. We need much more robust reporting requirements so we can identify exactly what's going on. We did a study just recently looking at all the publicly available financial data on PBMs between 2017 and 19, a full 40% of total revenues for PBMs are in a category of a number of questionable business practices that PBMs just call other revenue sources. We can identify revenues from rebates. We can identify revenues from pharmacy operations, but 40% of the revenues actually regulators cannot scrutinize. We need better reporting requirements so we can get at what they're doing. We need to look at 
the possibility of federal antitrust regulation. If this were the telephone company which broke up Ma Bell as a monopoly in order to create meaningful competition, and we know what's happened, phone costs have plummeted. That same kind of scrutiny, that same kind of oversight and regulation could be applied to PBMs to drive down prescription drug prices. We can look at more narrow kinds of policies. You go to buy a drug at the drugstore, your copay is often based on list price of the drug when nobody is paying the list price. The PBM takes the list price, gets an enormous rebate from that list price to an effective net price. They're paying the net price, but, the, but you are paying a copay on a list price, which is a phantom no one's ever paid for. That kind of regulation is necessary. But let me tell you one more exciting thing that could be done. The state of New Jersey looked at the same problem with us. We together designed a competitive PBM marketplace. We invited PBMs to bid on the state employees' account in New Jersey. It's a large account, 750,000 lives. We uh, required them to bid according to rules that we developed rather than letting PBMs apply their own separate contractual rules, which is the normal case. And we used big data analytics so we could project out what the cost of each PBM bid would actually be to the state rather than relying on PBMs to tell us what their savings would be. Then we showed what the cost of each PBM was transparently to the other PBMs, forced them to compete against one another in a kind of reverse eBay. We called it a PBM reverse auction. You know what happened? The state of New Jersey saved $2.53, get this, billion dollars in drug spend over just five years, two back-to-back PBM contracts, $2.53 billion in savings simply by creating a modicum of competition which doesn't normally exist in that marketplace. That needs to be done as well. So there's a few ideas of things that could be done if elected legislators, regulators were willing. There are so many things that we're told are going to help bring the cost of drugs down. And a lot of that had to do with pharmacies. And a lot of pharmacies ended up closing because they were locally owned pharmacies. And of course, well, if it was a large pharmacy group, then the prices would go down. So now we're still not seeing the prices go down. And how does all of that relate to the other thing we're told get the drugs through the mail. That's supposed to be lower as well. Is there anything in there that makes any sense? Paula, what a great question. So you drive competition out, you eliminate community pharmacies, and put all the business in large pharmacies, which are predominantly and increasingly owned by these PBM oligopolists. And the argument is, Because there'll be bigger volume, we can actually drive prices down than small community pharmacies. What's actually happened is competition's been eliminated. Yes, they can drive prices down, but they don't have to pass it on to patients or to employer health plans. They can keep it because there's no competitive force against those large oligopoly PBMs to require them to turn over the savings. So... What we're seeing is less and less competition as independent pharmacies are being driven out in communities. And then these oligopoly, three of them, remember just three of them control 80% of the marketplace, are free to keep the profits for themselves. And in fact, keep on driving up prices. No, the decline of competition by driving out independent pharmacies does not help reduce costs. It increases oligopoly concentration, which is driving up prices. Listen to this. The three largest PBMs have all merged. That is, they are owned or they own 
the largest free commercial insurance plans in America. So we see insurance and PBMs merging together in these enormous vertically integrated conglomerates. Those PBMs also dominate the specialty pharmacy industry. The largest specialty pharmacies are owned by PBMs, merged with insurance companies. When you go to get a specialty prescription, you can only get it from one specialty pharmacy. You probably didn't know that's owned by the PBM. It's actually in the middle of that prescription drug market. They're not reducing your cost. You can only go to that specialty pharmacy. That increases your cost. And increasing, look at CVS Caremark, the PBM that owns CVS uh, retail pharmacy. Increasing the retail pharmacy industry is also owned. Prescription mail order drugs are a great convenience for folks that need it. They're also a problem. The mail order that comes from your pharmacy, if it's a large corporate pharmacy, they can also fix prices and they can also continue to send you drugs whether you need them or not, driving up all over all prices. Final thing, each of these PBMs is opening what are group purchasing organizations. Two of the three large PBMs have opened those offshore, Dublin, Ireland, in, in Copenhagen, Denmark, where they have no real customer business. Why are they there? Well, one thing is, I don't know if this is why they're there, but they can escape congressional or regulatory scrutiny. Tell me how that reduces costs. We need to break up monopolies. We need them, we need PBMs to act as fiduciaries. That is responsible for the well-being of their clients. That is employer health plans, public health plans, and patients. We need to create competition between PBMs so that prices can be driven down as they were done in in the state of New Jersey, for example. So what can we do? Congress has a role to play. We need to look at laws that require PBMs to be fiduciaries, that is, to be responsible to uh, their customers. PBMs were created to drive down costs and pass savings on to their clients. We need to require them to fulfill that obligation, just like is done often in the financial sector. Fiduciaries are obligated to to uh, work in the interest of their clients. We should pay them a fair market value for, for providing that service, but not allow them these complex pricing algorithms, which allow them, in fact, to take savings that should be coming to patients and to payers and put them into their own bank account. This can be done if our elected representatives have the will. You know, just last month, the FTC was to vote on looking at the PBM marketplace, the lack of competitiveness in that marketplace, they didn't move forward. They broke on a party line, divided vote on whether to move forward. The PBM lobby was extremely effective. They've got very deep pockets in preventing the FTC commissioners uh, from moving forward. That kind of behavior cannot be tolerated. We need legislators, we need members of Congress to say we want transparency from PBM. States like New Jersey have been pioneering the way for how we can drive down prescription drug costs very effectively. And federally, we need oversight to assure that these are competitive industries. This can be done, Paula. Again, the political will to do it. Right now in Congress, the Warnock bill is moving forward. It would require, it's only for insulin, $35 a month, maximum payment for life-saving insulin drugs to diabetic patients. It's there right now. So we will see, the votes will count. It's important for us to look at our elected legislators and say, who is voting for assuring that people that need drugs to save their lives can actually afford them. What can our listeners who are not politicians, who are just regular consumers, what can they do? I can tell you this. Again, look at your members of Congress, the Warnock bill, 
sponsored by, by Senator Warnock of Georgia. Look at who's voting for that bill. Take note. Congressional elections are coming up. Tell your congressman you this is important. Do it. And when November comes, vote for people that, in fact, voted for life-saving medicines to be affordable for people who need them. That's one thing. Number two, I just want to note that I've spoke over the last two years to bipartisan members of the legislature in Harrisburg, Democrats and Republicans who understood the prescription drug problem is getting out of hand. And a number of them wanted to do a reverse auction in Pennsylvania, just like across the Delaware River was done in New Jersey. That has run into some headwaters by special interests, by opponents of, of having real market competition being the PBMs. Let your state legislators also know we can do in Pennsylvania what they did in New Jersey. We can do the same thing and we can capture real savings here in Pennsylvania the way that was done in New Jersey. Colorado passed legislation last year to do the same thing. Maryland passed legislation the year before. Pennsylvania, you can do it too. This is my home state. We can do it too. Thanks once again to Mark Blum, the executive director of America's Agenda Healthcare for All, telling us today about pharmacy benefit managers and the PBM Accountability Project. And just a quick reminder that once again, this weekend and next weekend, you have more opportunities to catch Actors Circle's Steel Magnolias. If you would like to find out more about tickets or reservations, you can go to their Facebook page, Actors Circle. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.